Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. Please welcome Dr. Jay Richards, Director of the Heritage Foundation's DeVos Center for Life, Religion, and Family. Well, welcome to all of you, uh, whether you're in person or online. It's, it's my pleasure to be able to host this on behalf of the Heritage Foundation. Uh, I'm the director of the DeVos Center here, which is the center at, at Heritage Foundation that handles the issue of life. Uh, and this is a historic week, obviously. In fact, I can't imagine a better time for us to host this event than the one that we have this morning. I want to mention that we're co-hosting this with our friends at the National Review Institute and the Ethics, uh, Ethics and Public Policy Center. So thanks for joining us. So uh, we are packed with a discussion about this brand new book. And so I know you all know about this, but it's a brand new book by Ryan Anderson and Alexander DeSanctis. And so afterwards, for those of you that are here in person, uh, feel free if we have uh, copies of the book for sale, you can get them signed and you can actually talk to the authors as well. But let me just very briefly introduce our panel and then I'll hand it over to them. First, our moderator this morning is Catherine Jean Lopez. Catherine is a senior fellow at the National Review Institute where she directs the Center for Religion, Culture, and Civil Society. She's also editor at large at National Review and has been on the editorial staff of National Review since 1997. So Catherine, I assume you must have started as a college intern, given that. Uh, she's published widely in Catholic and secular publications and is also a nationally syndicated columnist with Andrews McNeil uh, Universal. She's the author of A Year with the Mystics, Visionary Wisdom for Daily Living, and speaks frequently on faith in public life, virtue, and prayer. Ryan Anderson's the president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and he's also the founding editor of the Public Discourse, which is the online journal of the Witherspoon Institute. And he also, this is not in his bio, but he was actually my predecessor here at the Heritage Foundation for many years. He's author or co-author of five books, including this brand new book, Tearing Us Apart, but his previous book, which has the distinction of being banned from Amazon, uh, is When Harry Became Sally, Responding to the Transgender Moment. Anderson's research has been cited by two Supreme Court justices, Justice Samuel Alito and Justice Clarence Thomas, in two Supreme Court cases. Alexandra DeSanctis is a visiting fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, where she covers abortion policy and the pro-life movement, as well as other key topics at the intersection of politics, culture, and religion. She's also a staff writer at the National Review Institute and does regularly reporting, regular reporting for the National Review uh, print magazine, as well as National Review Online. She also hosts National Review's podcast, For Life, and she's a 2016 graduate of the University of Notre Dame and co-author with Ryan Anderson of this terrific new book. Please welcome our panelists. Thank you all for joining us. I, um, I still can't quite believe this is the first Monday after Roe. And uh, yeah, we couldn't have a timelier discussion, obviously. 
I am. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about Dobbs, obviously, up top, but I, I have to share. <clears throat> so the title of this book is Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. And a couple of months ago, I was on the streets of Manhattan outside Planned Parenthood at a Witness for Life that uh, has been going on for 15 years outside uh, Planned Parenthood, people praying the rosary across the street from Planned Parenthood. And the New York City for abortion rights people have gotten to know me. They protest our prayer. And uh, so one morning, uh, they come up to me and say, oh, Catherine Jean Lopez, thank you for joining us. It was so good of you to join us. What are you going to blame on abortion in the National Review today? And I thought, oh my goodness, they're reading us. <laughs> because there's a whole lot that traces back to abortion as the two of you go through in, in the book. So there is hope um, that, that we can convert hearts and minds, uh, um, even, even those who are most hostile. So Ryan, can I start with you? What were your first thoughts and as, as you've been processing what happened? Of course, we knew that that would probably happen. You kind of took a gamble that it would happen on this book, because this book is really a handbook for post-Roe America. And so the timing couldn't be uh, uh, better. So, Sure. I mean, a, a couple of thoughts. I mean, one is um, Alexandra and I last fall could count to five um, when the state of Mississippi asked the Supreme Court not only to uphold their 15-week law protecting babies um, after 15 weeks of life in the womb, um, they didn't just ask the court to uphold that. They actually asked the court to overturn Roe and Casey, which was a bold move by the state. And so I think um, the attorney general and the solicitor general there deserve a lot of credit for doing what conventional wisdom told them not to do. Mm -hmm. Conventional wisdom said, go for what Roberts is going to do in his concurrence and just ask to uphold the 15-week bill and then keep Roe and Casey in place. We could count to five thinking there's now five votes to do it. But I think conservatives have been burned so many times by the court that mm -hmm. it was cautious hope, right? It's um, always prepared for the worst because if you're a conservative at the Supreme Court for the past 50 years, that's what you came to expect. So even after the leak, um, we were like, this is great, but you know, there's still a chance that the chief pulls over someone to his opinion. Um, so Friday morning at 10.10, when you know, all of us were on SCOTUS blog refreshing, and uh, I, actually, I guess it was at the Supreme Court's website refreshing, because SCOTUS blog has the live feed. Um, it was just great. It's actually happening. Mm -hmm. you know, this isn't you know, Charlie Brown when you know, the football gets pulled away one more time. Um, but then it was also a sense of like, well, now um, we have to work that much harder. Mm -hmm. You know, overturning Roe was just a preliminary step. You know, we should celebrate. We should actually like uh, give a lot of thanks to the past 49 and a half years of pro-life scholars and activists who made this moment possible. Mm -hmm. uh, be very cognizant that you know there are people whose names will never be celebrated. Uh, people who labored largely um, unknown to us, who actually kept one this cause alive, and then two like laid the foundation. Um, you know, most every argument that Zan and I rehearse in the book, someone else originally developed. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we have, I don't know, 50 pages of endnotes, and those are the people who, you know, we're, we're building off of. Um, but then it was, you know, first I would say it was a moment of relief, like this actually happened, gratitude, and then it was, now we got to get to work. Right, right. Alexandra, you... Um I have to explain if you don't follow her. Um, I was so grateful when you came on the staff of National Review because I never have to read a Planned Parenthood annual report ever again because you are so on top of everything. And it's really, it's really a great service that you provide. Um, one example would be uh, Kate Smith from is she ABC or was CBS. she CBS? CBS. And, and you just doggedly followed her reporting 
and and said she was doing Planned Parenthood's PR. So now she's actually working for Planned Parenthood. So congratulations on helping her realize her true vocation, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> what were your reactions to, uh, yeah, to Friday? I think kind of like Ryan said, it was not surprising in the sense that we sort of knew it was coming for a long time, but it also was just kind of shocking that it actually was over, right? When I was growing up, I've been pro-life my whole life, and I've been doing this work at NR for six years, which is a microcosm of what most people in the movement have been doing, but it just never kind of felt real that in my lifetime this might actually be over, right? And for it to sink in, it almost hasn't sunk in. It's been a couple of days now. It's still kind of like, wow, Roe is actually over, right? It's so uh, momentous, and it almost feels kind of anticlimactic because the fight is now going to just go on, right? Abortion's not over today because Roe is gone. Um, but certainly, yeah, the, the gratitude for people that um, we'll never hear about or know, most of whom, that's kind of why we're here, right? We know the big names, and all those people are important, but all the work has been done at the grassroots level that, that we won't hear about. And I think that's really um, important to keep in mind. And that point that you make is so essential that abortions have not ended in America. Now, there are some states where um, trigger laws are now in place and whatnot, um, but also the reality is they're pills by mail. You know, it, abortions are still happening in America. And in states like my own New York, we're going to have more abortions. Our governor wants us to be an abortion destination. What a wonderful goal for, for, for a, a state. Um, one of the things that gives me hope is that polling, as you go into, makes clear consistently people don't know what Roe is. They don't know it's all three trimesters of abortion. Um, people who describe themselves as pro-choice they want to know that women in tough situations have options. They're not waking up in the morning wearing stickers. I, as I got into New, uh, a union station, I saw people leaving Saturday's rally, and it says abortion on demand without apology. That is not most people in America who describe themselves as pro-choice. So if we can get past the media and the mobs, you know, this, this book can convince people, or at least the facts in this book, if we make use of them. Um, what gives you hope? I'll start with Zan. Um, yeah, I think like you mentioned, just kind of remembering that what we see and hear from the pro-abortion movement is not where most people are. Um, and it's kind of hard to remember that because really all we hear about is, you know, uh, most Americans, 7 in 10 Americans support Roe, how could the court do this? Or um, we see the pictures of the angriest people outside the Supreme Court, or, you know, we see, um, you know, the, the pictures of the destruction at pregnancy resource centers that the kind of angriest pro-abortion supporters are now perpetrating. Um, but that's not where most people are. And I think most conversations I've had about abortion with people who disagree with me are mainly just worried about women, right, and what's going to happen to women. And I think um, part of what kind of brought this, the idea for this book to mind was that um, if this is the taking of an innocent human life, this isn't good for anybody. And so while that's a, a depressing thought, and, you know, we have a lot of work to do to, to convince people of that, that's actually an amazingly powerful argument, right? If you can say to somebody, women really need this, I'm worried about women, and you say, actually, this isn't good for women either, let me explain why. Um, and if they're sincere, they really want legal abortion because they're worried about women, and we're correct, then they're winnable, right? And that's, a, I think, a huge number of people, almost everybody who supports abortion, if they actually are open-minded, they care about what's best for women and for everybody in our society, um, they're winnable with not only what's in our book, but probably, probably more um, that the pro-life movement has to offer. And Ryan, you, you do have a chapter that really gets into how it's bad for women like physically and mentally. And, and um, you know, w one of the things that this book makes clear, and we have, these are like historic relics, we have some outside the end row issue of National Review, um, where we go into bad science, bad law, bad history, you know, bad for women. 
Um, obviously, children die in, in the midst of this. What good is, is there in this? Can you talk a little bit about some of the most important points um, in, in that realm? Sure. Um, so I would say the most important um, uh, area, this is, I guess, the, the second chapter of the book about how abortion harms women, um, is the overarching like worldview that it puts forward. So even more important than like the physical harms at both surgical abortion and then I think it's like you know at a two to three times greater rate the risk of chemical abortion to women. You know, greater than the physical harms, greater than like the regret, the emotional, psychological harm. I would say the way in which um, abortion as equality, so the Ruth Bader Ginsburg style argument, has allowed us to um, sustain a culture in which the male way of being human, the male way of embodiment, is taken as the norm, mm -hmm. and my wife's way of being human is somehow a defective version of my way of being human. And then we structure our higher education system, our um, employment system, our economy, our entire culture around my body being normal, her body being somehow dysfunctional. For her to be equal to me, she needs to sterilize her body. And then if the sterilization fails, she needs to kill her child who is viewed as a threat, a competitor um, to her equality, uh, rather than doing what all of the original uh, women's rights advocates, and this is where Alexandra and I, our colleague at EPPC, um, uh, Erica Bakiaki, has done such beautiful scholarship uh, pointing out that they took seriously equality. They understood equality did not mean sameness. Mm -hmm. And they wanted both laws and uh, cultural systems, social systems, to take each way of being human equally seriously and structuring society around the equal dignity of the female way of being human. Um, as penance for my sins, I have a really um, uh, aggressive confessor, and he makes me listen to the New York Times podcast, The Daily. And so this morning when I was driving in, I was listening to The Daily, and they interviewed four different um, workers at abortion clinics that were shut down on Friday because of the Roe decision, um, which uh, the Dobbs decision overturning Roe. Um, and it was just tragic listening to this, because they really believe that they are now unable to help women experiencing unplanned or crisis pregnancies. And, and you know, some of them you know, broke up during the, during the podcast episode saying, that, you know, I felt so bad, there's nothing I could do to help this woman. You know, all I could do was give her the name and the phone number of an out-of-state abortion clinic. And not once, you know, it's, an hour, it's a half an hour long podcast interviewing four different employees of um, abortion clinics. Not once did they say, you know, we could help these women choose life. You know, we could help give them other options to this. And just how tragic it is that, like, for the past 49 and a half years, Roe has um, built up an entire unjust social structure in which women's equality means access to abortion. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the things that gives me hope is like now the, the people who have been making these arguments like Erica for so long, now they have greater purchase. Mm -hmm. you know, Erica was on CBS Sunday News yesterday um, and Jan Crawford asked her, wait, are, are, are you saying that abortion's bad for women? And her response was, yes, that is exactly what I'm saying. And it was as if it was shocking, like this is a new revelation, like people are hearing it for the first time, but they are hearing it for the first time. And, yeah. and that's the importance of what we now have to do. Right? I mean, what, what the court did last Friday was open up this space uh, for us to now persuade our neighbors and then to pass laws that'll protect both babies and mothers. And we need to be very calm and patient knowing that even though we've been hearing and making these arguments our entire lives, other people are hearing it for the first time. Uh, I, I was really struck watching another Sunday show by how preposterous the pro-life view seemed to be to everybody around the table except Peggy Noonan. <laughs> um, um, 
Alexander, what gives you hope? And, and also, did anything surprise you in the midst of putting this, this book together? Uh, like uh, positive surprises? <laughs> yeah. I would yeah. say, um, I don't know that, I, that there was much positive in the book. And I remember when we were working on the introduction, we, we put a heavy emphasis on how all of this is important because life is good. Um, because after writing the whole book, I was like, man, this is awfully depressing. We have to remind people this is not just like a grim march through the, the kind of history of abortion and the lies that sustain it, um, although that is what most of the book is. Uh, but all, I think all of that is uh, that matters because we all kind of know fundamentally that life is good. Um, but I don't know. Yeah, besides kind of the winnability of, of the argument, I don't know that much gives me hope. I, I kind of I like the point Ryan raised about people listening now. Uh, I think that's true, right? It kind of things feel lighter and more open that we kind of have this chance to make the case in a way that we haven't. And I think Roe being gone is a, a good thing, obviously, because our laws can be changed now. Um, but it's good because the other side can't point to it anymore. Like it, the, it used to be the case that when you make the pro-life argument, the other side would just say, oh, it's the law of the land, right? right. Roe is the law of the land. This is the Constitution. Go away. Um, that's not true anymore. And so they might say it used to be the law of the land or, you know, the court was wrong, but that's going to fade away. They can't say that forever. Um, and so I think now there's going to have to be uh, people coming to the table from the other side, making their best case, which they don't have a good one, right? They don't, their best case is it's the law of the land. They can't say that. And so I think, um, you know, the fact that that is a new conversation is um, a good sign for us or a good opening for us. Robbie George uh, from Princeton, your, your mentor, um, was on Twitter or Facebook or something this weekend talking about being at a colleague's house who's pro-choice. I saw that. And, and she had on her refrigerator her grandchild's ultrasound. And so they were able to have a conversation just on the humanity, the obvious humanity there, you know, outside of a context of a political debate, right? Yep. And that is where we need to meet people because politics and media are not our friends on this issue necessarily. Obviously, we have to have, um, you know, policy and political debates. Um, but it's, it's, it's the place of pouring salt on wounds all too often, unfortunately. So the, most, the, the more we can leverage relationships to, 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 to have long-term you know, efforts to persuade, uh, the better. Um, in the book, and I found this hopeful, being reminded, while the deep concern of a woman bearing an unwanted child merits consideration and sympathy, it's my personal feeling that the legalization of abortion on demand is not in accordance with the value which our civilization places on human life. Wanted or wa unwanted, I believe that human life, even at its earliest stages, has certain rights which must be recognized, the right to be born, the right to love, the right to grow old. When history looks back at this error, it will, should recognize this generation as one which cared about human beings enough to halt the practice of war, to provide a decent living for, for every family, and to fulfill, fulfill its responsibility to its children from the very moment of conception. That was not Henry Hyde. <laughs> Would you like to tell us who that was, Ryan? Sure. That was Senator Ted Kennedy. <laughs> the pro-life Catholic <laughs> Senator Ted Kennedy before he evolved in this issue. Before right. so many, I mean, you should ask the question, but before I... No, no, go well, ahead, I mean, go ahead. I mean, so, so you know the question. <laughs> the, 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 yes, without even... I mean, the, the, the context in which Alexander and I quote that, that's a letter from uh, Senator Kennedy back in 1971 mm -hmm. to one of his constituents yeah. explaining why he's pro-life. Um, and it's because he was in favor of the little guy, defending the little guy. At one point, the Democratic Party and Catholic Democrats, pro-life Democrats, were all about, like, we're not looking for the big guy. We're not in favor of corporations. We're in favor of protecting the little guy. And who's the littlest amongst us, the unborn baby? And one by one by one, um, they've all caved. They've all evolved. They've all... Um, uh, Joe Biden, Dick Durbin, the yeah, list goes below. I mean, right. it's, it's, it's just, it's an un... I mean, 
Joe Biden, back in, I think it was 1982, we cite this in the book, he proposed the Hatch Amendment, which would have more or less done what Dobbs did this past Friday, is, is return the question to the states. That's what the, the, the Hatch Amendment, which he voted the, dis, uh, the discharge position to get it out of committee. Um, it's just, it's sad, it's tragic, especially as some of these elected officials are nearing their death. Yeah, yeah. Um, like, you know, I actually, I, I pray for their eternal souls because, I mean, what they have done for the sake of political office, undermining a basic moral truth. Right. The basic moral truth about the value of that life in the womb, made in the image and likeness of God, um, and to, you know, throw that away just for political office. What we point out in that chapter of the book is like, how much better would our politics in the United States be if pro-life voters had a meaningful choice between two parties, right. neither of which was committed to a fundamental injustice? Now, I'm conservative on other issues, so we can, we can debate on the merits, various other reasons why you might want to vote one way or the other, but it would just be healthier for our polity um, if neither political party was committed to injustice. So then we could actually debate those other things right. on the merits, but so many voters feel hostage to one political party, and many of those same voters feel that that political party has just taken them for granted. Mm -hmm. right? So another thing that we're now gonna enter into is you can no longer just say, well, I'm against Roe v. Wade and I'll vote to confirm justices. Right? All of a sudden it's like, right, well, now what are you gonna do? Right? Right. What legislation are you gonna put forward? What legislation are you gonna vote for both to protect the child in the womb, protect the mother, assist that mother. Uh, and I think this is now going to be kind of a put up or shut up moment uh, for the Republican Party. Right. Uh, and many of us who have worked in D.C. know who are those Republican elected officials who campaign on being pro-life, get to D.C., and then not only do nothing, like actively try to undermine the cause mm -hmm. in the, you know, the meetings of leadership. Mm -hmm. right? Various officials saying, don't bring that bill to a vote, it's divisive. Mm -hmm. right? Now is the time to actually exercise moral leadership on these issues. And I think we'll discover it's popular with voters. Right, right. right? The public opinion polls, I mean, there, there was a stupid tweet over the weekend from the president of France, you know, condemning the decision in Dobbs. The Mississippi bill protects on board babies at 15 weeks. France protects them at 12, <laughs> right? France apparently is more regressive. Than, I mean, it's just utterly ridiculous. Um, and as more and more of our voters discover that, that, you know, it's of the, I think there are 42 European nations that allow abortion. 39 of the 42 have laws protective, more protective than the Mississippi law, at least as protective 15 weeks or earlier, 39 of the 42 European nations that allow abortion. We are the outlier. Right, with North Korea and China, yes. which is not a company that I want to be in, yep. right? And now obviously we don't want to end up with Europe, right? If, 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 the, right? if the final kind of like, you know, where we end up in the United States is just to have Germany and France's abortion laws, you know, considering that I think it's 92% of all abortions take place before 15 weeks, that's not really going to be a, an acceptable outcome either. I mean, right. These are starting points to the eventual goal of every life being protected in law and welcomed in life. That's still the goal, and incrementalism has to be at the service of that ultimate goal. The reason why the Ted Kennedy quote gives me hope is that these guys, well, hopefully when he went to his maker, he, he repented. Um, the ones who are still around still have an opportunity, and they know better, you know. <laughs> and science and everything else knows better. And um, and and don't tell me that they don't enjoy their grandchildren's ultrasounds, you know, um, because of course they do. That having been said, Kathy Hochul, the governor of New York, her first tweet in reaction to the leak of the draft of the Dobbs decision was to bemoan the fact that she has to fight for her infant granddaughter's right to choose. Like, you're seriously thinking about your granddaughter having an abortion. 
and what if your daughter had chosen? And anyhow, um, but um, Zan, can you talk a little bit about? Do you have hope for the Democratic Party? I mean, you know, you've you've written in, in the book. You talk about Dan Lipinski, who's a heroic man, who of course was voted, was primaried out of uh, out of Congress. Can you talk a, a little bit about the Democrats, and is sure. there any hope there? Well, I like the that letter in particular, um, and there are a lot of examples of this. What I've always thought about, I think my dad's the first one who introduced me to this thought, so I should give him credit for this. But if you look at kind of um, Catholic, the old Catholic pro-life Democrats, their kind of iterations of why they were pro-life pre-Roe, um, like that letter, for example, they acknowledge the humanity of the unborn child, right, pretty much unanimously. Then when they, they flip-flop, none of them ever came out and said, you know, I've looked at the science here, I've thought about it more, and I don't think these are human beings anymore, right? They always evolve and say, well, I've thought about it, and I think, you know, it's, this is about a woman's right to choose, or a government shouldn't get in between a woman and her doctor, or some kind of political euphemism about women. They've never said, you know, this isn't a child. I don't, I've changed my mind about how I used to think this was a human being. They never said that. And so while that's depressing and it shows kind of the, the callowness of what they did, um, it also shows that what they thought initially is, is true and they know that, right? A couple right. months ago when Biden was asked about this, he said, um, he used the phrase abort a child, right? He knows what this is. He, he did it again in his rant on Friday. I yeah. mean, he's, something is probably not quite right with him, but inside somewhere he knows that this is a child like everybody does. And so um, I think there's some hope to be found in that, right? Kind of the truth is just in there. We all know um, what it is in some sense, even the people who, who flip-flop for political reasons. Um, in terms of hope for the party, I think, uh, I, I don't know. I, I kind of wonder how things will shake out. And I think um, there will be different political incentives with Rogan. And uh, I don't know, I don't have a ton of hope about the National Democratic Party tomorrow, but I do have hope that the kind of uh, the vice grip of Planned Parenthood and NARAL on the Democratic Party is looser today than it used to be. And Democrats in Louisiana have a lot more uh, kind of political clout, pro-life Democrats in Louisiana than they once did, right? States, yeah. what's happening in states is what's most important today in America in terms of abortion law. Um, and that doesn't mean there's nothing to do at the federal level, but what Nancy Pelosi says about abortion has a lot less power. Right. And I think that changes the calculus if you or her or somebody else about what you say about abortion. And maybe there's more room for, for Democrats to be honest about it with themselves and, and have um, kind of loosen the, the vice grip on their shoulders from these abortion groups. Over um, the weekend, when I'm in an Uber, it becomes like a confessional, and the <laughs> driver just starts talking to me. And so on, on Saturday, he started blackmailing. Are you the confessor or are you the confessee? Uh, I'm the confessor, apparently. It's not sacramental. <laughs> we have priests in the audience. Don't worry. Um, <laughs> but so he started talking about the uh, you know demonstrators in, in town and and uh, and how he he doesn't. He doesn't get why they're so mad because we don't really need abortion. There's a 20 something black man from Baltimore. Um, and he said, I got in a lot of trouble with my mother talking about this, but if people were just not like randomly hooking up, we wouldn't need abortion so much. And if they went, like, just waited until they were in love, we wouldn't need abortion so much. And he said, But all the women in my life say I'm wrong. And I said, Sir, we need more men like you. <laughs> Ryan, can you talk a little bit? Because you do, you do just talk personally as, you know, you've been pro-life for as long as I've known you, and I assume longer than that. And we've known each other since you were an undergraduate yeah. at Princeton. <laughs> and um, how, how, how has being a father changed you? And, and do you speak about the responsibility of men in this? Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. No, uh, great questions. Um, I mean, I would say what changed when I became a father was not anything about the underlying truth of the matter, 
uh, or the underlying, you know, like what it is that you know I'm convicted on this issue it was just how deeply convicted, mm -hmm. right? The first time you see that ultrasound image of your child, um, you know, I, I was here last week for something that um, Heritage did, and you know, I mentioned like when I first saw his face, I didn't even know what his face yet, right? Because you don't, when first time you're seeing the 12-week ultrasound, you don't know which end is which. Uh, and the ultrasound <laughs> technician points this, but you know, it was him all the same, right? I mean, that is exactly what a 12-week-old human being looks like. Um, and the ultrasound technician, you know, first said, you know, I got the order backwards when I spoke here last time, but you know, the first thing he said, that's your baby's heartbeat. Because, you know, the first thing they're trying to do is to detect a heartbeat to make sure your baby's uh, thriving in the womb. Then they say, that's your baby's face. Right? They, they never say the word fetus. Right? Mm -hmm. They never say cardiac polar activity, some euphemism for the heartbeat. We all know what it is. And uh, Anna wasn't a birthing person. No, she was a mother. <laughs> uh, it's amazing how the, the dissenters knew that it was women and mothers mm -hmm. all throughout the, the dissent. But, um, so all I would say is that it, it just makes it um, more impactful, like deeper. Because um, almost that, there's like an emotional level, very cognitive. Right? Mm -hmm. you know, I, I, I've read probably tens of thousands of pages uh, on both sides of the abortion issue. My first job out of Princeton was as Robbie's, Robbie George's research assistant for a book he was doing titled Embryo, A Defense mm. of Human Life. He was serving on the President's Council on Bioethics at the time. I actually like opened up some of the research briefs that I wrote for him back in June of 2004 as we were drafting some of the chapters of this mm. book um, because those notes were still very relevant. Uh, the arguments hadn't changed. But I would just say, so it didn't change my viewpoint. It just made it more impactful. Um, but then the second part of your question was like the, the role of fathers, the role of men. Um, I think this is where this book intersects with some of the work that I've done um, on the marriage debate and just on human sexuality in general. Um, I do not think we ultimately build a culture of life unless we also restore a marriage culture. Um, and that part of restoring a marriage culture needs to be restoring a sound understanding of human sexuality. Mm -hmm. I, I, I'm, you know, I'm talking off the cuff here. I, I think the statistic is that 3% of abortions are from, uh, or yeah, 3% of abortions are from married uh, mothers. Mm -hmm. um, that the safest place to be if you are conceived is inside of marriage. Marriage is the greatest protector of unborn children because marriage helps protect that mother. Right? Having Maggie Aller, you know, famously, you know, I first heard this from her and she would make the argument that the way that you get men and women to commit to children is to get men and women to commit to each other first. Mm. And that's why marriage is so important. Um, we can have the best pro-family policy in terms of paid family leave and prenatal child support and child tax. All, if we don't actually solve the cultural problem of getting men and women to commit to each other and to stay committed in marriage, uh, having uh, uh, people understand that sex is for marriage, it's not recreational activity the way that uh, your Uber driver also understands, uh, I think it needs to be a both and, mm -hmm. um, that we need to respond to the sexual revolution in its totality and respond to abortion, which you know is uh, something that fueled the sexual revolution, but is also something that was, then became necessary right. because of the sexual revolution, which is a symbiotic relationship there. Uh, we need to be holistic in our response. And that's been a consistent argument that the other side is, has made, that you can't overturn Roe because our society needs it now. Like, everybody's adjusted to it. And, um, and in the book, Alexander, you talk a lot about the culture. And w one thing that I'm always um, affected by is if you spend time outside of abortion clinics, they're not middle-class women, you know, exercising their empowerment. 
17-year-old black girls, or when I meet the most in New York City, you know, who are being forced by their mothers, who are, I'm thinking of one in particular who was afraid to tell her, her the boyfriend, um, and, uh, and anyway, I think about those girls, and you think about the pop culture, and the music is telling women, use or be used, you know, you gotta, you gotta use them first. And, and, you know, they're not taught about abstinence. That's, like, unheard of. You could never do that, you know. Um, you know, this poor guy with the Uber with all the women telling him he's crazy. Can you talk a little bit about the culture? And do you see yeah. any bright spots? Keep asking me for hope. I don't have I know, very much to give. I know. Why am I <laughs> Ask Ryan about his hope. Um, no, that's a really interesting question. I'm trying actually, to get you to be more helpful. I'll see, what, I'll see if I can get there. Um, I do have some thoughts about this, though, because the reaction on, on Instagram, just from my age demographic, to this decision is appalling. And so I think a lot about where are these people coming from, right? That, that all these women my age think that their rights have been taken away, that their life is over now. Like, that's Obviously, I disagree. I think they're wrong, but it's coming from somewhere sincere for most of them. And I think it's really important to get to the bottom of what's driving that. So I'll say two things. The first is we actually have an anecdote in the book that speaks very much to what you were just saying about the abortion clinics. I was doing an interview a couple years ago for National Review, and I spoke to this woman, Christina Bennett. You probably know her, um, who uh, has done many things in the pro-life movement, but a lot of counseling outside of crisis pregnancy centers, primarily in Connecticut um, most recently. And she told me the story about how there was some pro-abortion group that was handing out candles that said abortion is magical on them to their volunteers. And she said to me, if I were to take one of these candles to the you know, inner city Hartford abortion clinic and try to hand them out to the girls going into that clinic, none of them want those candles, right? Mm -hmm. That's not their reality. These women are getting abortions because they have kids at home and can't put food on the table, because their partner's forcing them to do it, whatever the case might be, they're, they're doing it out of desperation. This is not some wonderful choice they're making that's good for them. And that's by and large the story of abortion. And we hear a very different story, like, you know, it's great that there are 80% of Planned Parenthood clinics in low-income minority neighborhoods. That's not a great thing. If that's true and those women really feel like they need it, we have work to do, and it's not to build more abortion clinics. Um, and I think it's, it's all kind of fueled by this, this underlying assumption that freedom is just participation in sex at any point with anybody with no consequences. And so women my age think, well, men can do that, right? That's what we're all doing. It's assumed that that's what, what life is about right now. Men can do that and walk away. Why can't I? And so when you overturn Roe v. Wade and maybe in their state, suddenly they can't walk, walk away, right? And this is where it goes back to our colleague Erica's work. Um, walking away from, from pregnancy for a woman is an act of violence against their own child, right? And it's plenty bad for a man to walk away and abandon the mother of his child and his child. But for a woman, that's an act of violence. And she's not better off for having to choose that so that she can participate in the you know, fun sexual culture the way men can. But that's kind of the lie we have to unravel. Um, and so I guess it's hopeful in some ways that... Um, you know, we can now kind of change the laws and get through to people a little bit more. Um, but I think unraveling that is a really, really big task. And we have to get, it's very hard to get to the root of a, that kind of dysfunction. Storytelling is so important. And thank you for, for doing that at, at National Review. Um, even in recent days, there was a Washington Post piece about this teenage girl who couldn't have an abortion in Texas. Yeah. <laughs> and the writers clearly wanted us to be outraged that this poor girl has twins now and she and her boyfriend are like making it work and there are pictures of them and they're adorable and we're supposed to want those babies to be dead. I, I, th I think so because of this reality that you speak to, Alexandra, there's sincerity here. But the more this is out in the open and it's a matter of debate, the more, you know, 
they're telling the story for us without, without realizing it. You know, it, it's quite amazing. But Ryan, I wanted to ask you. And, and oh, I go, think that's a go. cause for hope. Yeah, I mean, totally, so, 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 totally. Um, when I saw that Washington Post story, I was like, despite their best efforts, yes, yes. this is having the exact opposite impact on readers right. and what they likely intended it to have. Um, and, 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 you know, um, Sharif Gurgis, uh, frequent uh, collaborator, co-author of mine, he has a piece, I don't know if it's been published yet on SCOTUS blog or, or not, but SCOTUS blog asked him to write a response to Dobbs. And, you know, I was reading a draft of it for him over the weekend. And his last paragraph really struck me as uh, a sign of hope. He says, you know, right now, um, there are babies alive who were scheduled to be aborted on Friday afternoon, but mm -hmm. weren't because of the Dobbs decision. And a year from now, those babies will be making the transition from milk to solid foods. And two years from now, those babies will be learning to walk and to talk. And he just goes through like the litany of like all the life progression and all because of what the court did this past mm -hmm. Friday, right? Because already I think it's, uh, um, is it 12 states that have had laws that already are being enforced protecting unborn babies. There's another, I think, about 12 states that, you know, there's like a 30-day waiting period or the attorney general has to certify. And then those laws are going to, like, lives are being saved. Um, and I think those lives will then be a witness to life, um, either when something like the Washington Post news story happened or just within their communities, right, mm -hmm. within their families. Like, this was a baby I was scheduled to abort and I didn't. And now, a year later, two years, I'm so glad I didn't. Right. I mean, I, I think many of the things that are the greatest blessings in our lives are actually things that we didn't choose for ourselves. We didn't necessarily consent to. We might have actively been opposed to it, but it happened anyway. And then only in hindsight can we then view it as a blessing in disguise. Um, and that's not to therefore say that that means that people experiencing unplanned pregnancies don't deserve our support. They do. Uh, but I think one way of one thing that gives me hope is that many of these children will then be some of the best uh, witnesses to life a year from now, five years yeah. from now, 10 years from now. And we have to do our part to make it that way, mm -hmm. um, that those children are experienced as a blessing in the lives of those families. Um, and that means volunteering, that means donating, that means crafting good public policy, like the whole host of things that we now need to do. So like those children are blessings, so that they are experienced as blessings is work that we have to do. Thank you for making me cry. <laughs> <laughs> on, on Friday, it was the Feast of the Sacred Heart, uh, Catholics know. Um, and, um, and for reasons I don't fully understand, it's normally the Feast of the Nativity of John the Baptist on that day, but rare for, it was this rare Feast of the Sacred Heart. And I just thought that really had to be a providential you know, message to us. The planets were also aligned. The planets. <laughs> For the non-Catholic. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> but really, I mean, we have to lead with, with love in everything that, that we do from this point on. And you were reminding me, Ryan, when you were talking of years ago um, when the partial birth abortion uh, debate was a thing during the Clinton administration, Rick Santorum has this story of one night, you know, speaking, those who watch C-SPAN know the empty floor in the Senate, you know, um, and, and he just, he, he, uh, he calls his wife, Karen, and said, I'm going to be home a little later. He just had this nudge that he needed to keep talking. And he was debating Diane Feinstein at one point. And um, anyway, like four years later, he gets the letter from, um, from uh, I think it was the mother. Um, it was the mother of the father. And anyway, that night, a couple is watching 
just flipping channels, and they stop on C-SPAN for some reason or another, and they're listening to this exchange. And uh, the, the girl says to her boyfriend, I have an abortion scheduled for tomorrow. And they had a conversation, and the abortion didn't happen. And there was a four-year-old, I think there was a picture. And you just never know when we're having these conversations, um, and obviously when laws are changing, um, you know, who, what lives are being, being saved. And um, yeah, I agree entirely. We have to make sure those stories are told, because uh, other stories are going to be told, too. And, um, and uh, we have to be relentless in, in, in focusing on, on the good. So we have, we have, this is being live streamed. This can be watched after the fact. C-SPAN is going to be airing it. Not everyone agrees with us. Um, Alexandra, can you speak to that person who either is on the fence or uh, thinks we're all trying to oppress women? Yeah, I, I think the simplest way to do that is just to kind of explain why the idea for this book came to mind. And I think I've, I've spent, like I said, a microcosm compared to most people working in the pro-life movement. But the whole time I've been writing about this issue, I've been thinking to myself kind of this idea has been germinating, which is if we're right as pro-lifers that this is the, the take in innocent human life. Uh, that's obviously the fundamental harm of abortion. We have to do everything we can to stop that. But if that's true, how could any aspect of this be good for any of us? Right? How could it actually be a victory for women to enact that kind of violence, not only against a stranger, but their own child. How could it be good for fathers that women are killing their unborn children? How could it be good for the grandparents, the brothers, the sisters, anybody in that family? How could it be good for uh, societies? How could it be good for any of us to live in a society where that's legal or socially acceptable? Um, how, what kind of society are we if the best solution we have to any set of problems is to kill the most vulnerable people among us? Um, and so I would just say, yeah, if you believe abortion is necessary, think about why and think about are the problems that you identify that make you think abortion is the solution really solved by perpetrating violence against innocent, vulnerable human beings? How are, how are any of us really better off? It's really a moment where the parties need to grow up and really work together to, um, you know, on, on the matters that we agree with. We agree that, that women should, we, we can agree on some paid family leave bill. We can, you know. we, we we can agree on community health centers need support. You know, there are things we can agree on. Um, of course, there are no political incentives to do that, but we, we do need some leaders. Ryan, what's your... So, um, exactly on that, I both, it was, I think, a week or two ago that Romney introduced his uh, legislative proposal. I think Rubio, was, was it one Friday afternoon itself, or Rubio has one in the works that will, if it hasn't already been released, it will soon be released. And um, Republicans are th rethinking some of these issues, and that's healthy. I, don't, I mean, I don't mean to, to endorse either of these as like the right. perfect end-all, be-all, but these are constructive signs that there are people on the right side of the aisle willing to say, we both want to prohibit lethal violence in the womb, and we want to make family formation more achievable, and we want to make support for um, uh, women carrying children in their wombs uh, a reality. Right? Mm -hmm. and, um, now, you know, we, we need the bipartisan part of that to come along. Romney and Rubio are both on the right side of the aisle, yeah. but uh, there's no reason why someone on the left side of the aisle couldn't embrace these bills. It, it's, um, uh, it, it should be a bipartisan matter. Um, you see this happening in the states. Uh, so Texas got lots of media attention for the heartbeat bill. That same legislative session, they allocated an additional $100 million to the Texas Alternatives to Abortion Program. Mm -hmm. Uh, Ron DeSantis about a month ago signed into law the fatherhood initiative right. in Florida. A variety of states are doing both and. Mm -hmm. 
right? They're, they're, they're both prohibiting lethal violence and they're providing supports um, to mothers and they're providing incentives for family formation, for fathers to be involved in the lives of their children. Marriage as, you know, to my mind, the ultimate uh, pro-life institution, the ultimate social justice institution. Um, so, so I think that these efforts have already been in the works. Right. They are ramping up, they are increasing. We should be working with them to make them even better. Um, this was the second, this was 2.0 of Romney's bill. I'm sure 3.0 will be even better. Mm. Right? He took into account uh, criticism he got and he made improvements. There are probably other flaws that could be improved even further and his office is willing to continually improve it. We should be participating in those right. discussions. We also need to be talking about adoption during the Dobbs uh, debate and the oral arguments in particular, there was a backlash against adoption, also against safe haven laws. Oh. Um, it, we could talk for hours more, unfortunately we have to close in a moment, but more conversations, I'm sure we'll have more conversations uh, about this in the coming days and weeks and months, um, really critical um, to make sure that, you know, so often uh, women are asked, they rather have they rather choose abortion rather than knowing that, uh, that they abandoned their child. Meanwhile, there are so many couples struggling with infertility who would love to raise a child who a woman courageously you know, uh, gave birth to. And so, so many human conversations we have to have and, um, and so many stories we have to tell about the pregnancy help centers and the maternity homes. You talk about Mary's shelter in Fredericksburg in, in the book. And each one of us who considers ourselves pro-life needs to, as you were, you were um, mentioning earlier, Ryan, think, what more can I do? Because there's so much more that needs to be done. And I know I had a conversation with a reporter on Friday, and she didn't believe that there were any pregnancy care centers. I mean, really, honestly, didn't believe. And so we have so much work to be done. And I want to thank you for the work that you do and for this you did this book in an amazingly short period of time. I am I, like the queen of blowing through deadlines myself, so I'm very impressed that, that you have this ready for this moment. Um, tearing us apart, how abortion harms everything and solves nothing. Thank you, Alexander DeSanctis and Ryan Anderson. And thank you for everyone watching here in person or on live stream or on C-SPAN. Uh, please, please buy the book and share it. And, um, and please follow the, the work of Alexander DeSantis and Ryan Anderson. And I'm Catherine Lopez from the National Review Institute Banking, um, Ethics and Public Policy Center, and Heritage Foundation, obviously, for hosting us and Jay Richards. <laughs>